Yes, it, it, is, it is truly wonderful to see all of you. And uh, Nancy and I think of you often. Uh, it's more than two years now that we moved away from here. And uh, it's been quite the two years. Uh, we lived temporarily in a basement apartment for a year. And then finally, we're able to purchase a home that needed pretty much total renovation, which we did, and we moved in in August of last year. And uh, we just thought, this is wonderful. I have, I'm semi-retired. I have some work to do. Uh, regional leader, which is not a full-time job, and serving very part-time in my new church, Grace Church, uh, with our children living by, our grandchildren living by us, our closest friend, friends, uh, my closest friend Larry leading the church, enjoying being a part of that. And then uh, the Lord in his, oh, perplexing wisdom decided that it was time for Larry to go to heaven. And he died suddenly. Uh, no illness preceding and uh, suddenly I was back to being a full-time pastor again uh, serving Devin Coughlin who we installed as the lead pastor of the church and so I've been doing that for the last year a couple things came with that one thing came with that that was totally unexpected uh, we were we had invited a couple who are from Beijing, China, who lived in the United States to come and plant a church among the Mandarin-speaking people in Clarksburg, where we meet. Uh, there are many, many Chinese people in Clarksburg, and so Feng Yu and his wife Feng Zhou were coming to uh, lead this church plant, and Larry was going to be Feng Yu's mentor and care for him. Larry has extensive uh, experience in Asia. Uh, but then Larry left. Uh, and it fell to me to care for and lead this couple. And so I'm suddenly immersed in Chinese people and Chinese culture. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> Never. Wasn't something, you know, it's like one of those things you say, I didn't go to school for this. Uh, I didn't. Uh, and the other thing that's become more significant in our life is that we've become uh, the point couple to care from the United States for Ed and Robin O'Mara in Torino, Italy. And so we were just there last month. And uh, so suddenly I'm thinking lots about Italy and Italians. Who knew? Uh, so those are some of the changes uh, that have come to us and um, I love seeing men from the generation behind me take on positions of responsibility it's been such a joy to see Adam come here and lead you uh, and all the great reports I hear about you from him um, it's also been a joy to serve under Devin Coughlin my earliest memory of Devin was watching him as a 10-year-old play a Little League baseball game. So it's uh, wonderful now to sit under 
his teaching and leadership. And uh, I'm just so grateful for those of you who are here, who are young, who are raising families. Uh, it's the most courageous thing you can do in America today. And if you're in the middle of it, you probably get that. Well, I did come to preach, and if I continue on, I'll get emotional about the whole thing. So open your Bibles to Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel, Ezekiel is one of those big prophets that if you read through the Bible, you read quickly. Um, I've been spending a long time in this book of Ezekiel. And I want to read two verses and then pray for understanding, and then we're going to take some time to consider them. So Ezekiel 33, verse 10. And you, son of man, he's addressing Ezekiel, say to the house of Israel, thus have you said, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Let's pray. Father, I, I'm very aware that besides myself, everybody walked in here today not thinking about Ezekiel, not thinking about the age he lived in and the challenges he faced, but you have put this text in the heart of this book so that we could know you and know how to live in the world you've placed us in. And so we pray that you would teach us today. We pray that you would get us thinking. We pray that this question, how then shall we live, would be a question that we continually ask and seek for answers to. So, Teach us now, Lord, and help us, and help me to make these things plain for these, your children, your dear children, Lord. I pray that we would grow in wisdom and understanding because we've pondered your word today. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage of Scripture is and has been extremely important to me for 47 years. 47 years ago, I was in college. I was taking upper level courses in history, literature, philosophy, art history. And I was trying to put together what I was learning in my classes with the chaos of my generation, which I saw in full display in my high school and in a more muted form in my college. I, I wanted to see how the Bible related to what I was 
seeing in my peers and in the culture and politics of that day, and how that connected with what I was studying in my classes. And sad to say, my professors were not much help, though they were all Christians. I went to a Christian college. Most of them were academically strong, but they were theologically weak and pastorally inept. And then I came across the books of a man named Francis Schaeffer. Schaeffer made the connections that my professors seemed unwilling to make. And I heard that Schaeffer had made a film that traced the lineage of the chaos of our day through history. But the only place that Nancy and I could go to see it was a two, two and a half hour drive from our school where there was a church showing the film series. And we made that trip at least twice. The title of the film and the book that accompanied it was How Should We Then Live? That's Ezekiel 33.10. How should we then live? We only come across this quotation, though, in the last page of Schaefer's book. The final chapter is a call to Christians to return what, to what Schaefer called the Christian base of Western civilization. It called Christians to embrace a Christian worldview grounded in Scripture as the ultimate revelation of truth and to act from that base. But Schaefer didn't really take up the question that has dogged me throughout my life. How should we live in the chaos of this world? I'm not talking about turning from obvious sins. I'm talking about a way of life that reflects the gospel and leads to joy and fruitfulness in day-to-day -day living. This question has constantly prodded me in my life and ministry ever since I saw that Schaefer film. Now, I said he didn't really answer the question, but to be fair to Schaefer and to his wife Edith, they did try to model how to live by founding a ministry in, in, in the Swiss Alps, a ministry called Labri. Labri is the French words for the shelter. Through donations, they were able to purchase a chalet high up in the mountains where they sought to model Christian community to the many visitors that they hosted. Nancy and I read Edith Schaefer's account of Labri and we were inspired to apply the same ideas in suburban America. You all have been <laughs> the recipients of our lifelong experiment of that. Can we live a life with a commitment to Scripture where relationships fostered by hospitality were based in a local church? A place where people who were savaged by the rising evil in our society could come to live, come to really live in a community that served as a shelter from the storm of the rising chaos. 
Now, one of my disappointments with Schaefer is that he spent a lot more time in philosophical and cultural analysis than he did in exploring how living in this age looks for people who must live and work day to day in our society. How do we live with work project deadlines and taxes and mortgages and educating children and the constant assault on our senses by advertising and news media that by our day, a news media that has often been reduced to buffoonery. How do we live? How do we live here? How do we live now? How do we live in this place on this day? Now, I do think we need to be careful about dictating what we call lifestyle choices. I'm not here to do that. I do think the Bible points us in a direction, though, that causes us to ask and answer this question. Every household should be asking this question. How do we live? It's a plural question. Every church should be asking this question. How do we live together? And I found a lot of help in studying the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah to get an idea of how to live in this modern age from these prophets who lived 2,500 years ago. Now, before we look at the implications of the text, we need to know a little bit about the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel was born in Israel. During his childhood, there was a revival in the kingdom of Judah that was led by their king, Josiah, who went throughout the land seeking to eliminate the idol temples that dotted his kingdom. But Josiah made a bad mistake. He got involved in a war between Egypt and Assyria. He went out to fight Egypt, and in that battle, he was killed. Judah, his, the name of his country, became a vassal state of Egypt. But Babylon was on the rise, and Babylon was able to gain control of Judah from Egypt, and the Israelites in Judah resisted Babylon, hoping to be free of anybody's control. And the Babylonian king decided to deal with these rebels. He came and defeated Judah and her capital city, Jerusalem. And after defeating the people, he took 10,000 of the nobility including the wealthiest, most talented, and most influential Israelites with him back to Babylon to exile. Ezekiel was a part of that exile. He was 25 years old. After five years passed in exile, the Lord called Ezekiel to be his prophet. He showed him a vision that revealed that the Lord was both majestic in his power and splendor and all-seeing and terrifying in his judgments. God revealed himself to Ezekiel in the heart of Babylon. God showed Ezekiel, I control all history. I control all nations, even the mightiest nation on earth, Babylon. Now, during this time, among the Jews, there was a theological debate 
going on, and it had to do with the spiritual status of the exiles and the spiritual status of those who remained in Jerusalem. The people in Jerusalem tended to say that they were the righteous ones and the exiles were under judgment. And the people in exile were saying that those left behind in Jerusalem were under God's judgment and that once he had cleansed Jerusalem, they would return to take over leadership. So there's this debate about who the good guys and the bad guys are because obviously something very bad happened to the ruling class of Israel in the deportation. Both Jeremiah, who had not been exiled, and Ezekiel, who had been forced from his home into Babylon, had the same message. All the Israelites were under judgment for their idolatry and the sins that flowed from their idolatry, the sins of murder and adultery and oppression of the poor and sensual living. This pronouncement of judgment was Ezekiel's message for five years. Five years telling people, you are under God's judgment. And people found Ezekiel to be entertaining. He often acted out his prophecies. He was kind of bizarre. So they loved gathering with him, listening to him, but they ignored his message. Then the Israelite king in Jerusalem tried to get out from under Babylon's control, and the result was a siege of Jerusalem by the full force of the most powerful army on earth. At the end of the chapter that we're in right now, at the end of that chapter, we learn, the exiles learn the terrible truth. Jerusalem had been flattened and the temple reduced to rubble. For 32 chapters in Ezekiel, we read of the prophet's pronouncements of judgment on Israel, both in Jerusalem and in exile, and on the nations that surrounded them, including the Babylonians. For 32 chapters, over five years, Ezekiel was ignored. But in chapter 33, we have evidence that the message was getting through. The exiles approached Ezekiel and, and admitted, as we read in verse 10, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us and we rot away because of them. They were beginning to realize that there were consequences to their continued rejection of the Lord, that they could not claim to be righteous just because of certain religious practices that they did, while at the same time continuing in their sins. They felt as if they were rotting away, or as another translation puts it, wasting away. How, they wondered, can we live, how can we simply survive under God's judgment? And the Lord tells them that it begins with repentance. Verse 11, turn, turn back from your evil ways. 
But we need more than to turn from sin. We need something to live for. Someone to live for. And we need a way to live. We need God to show us how to live in a society living in exile under judgment. So chapters 34 to 48 give us a vision that provides us hope and a confident anticipation for a positive future. Now, I'm just bringing this sermon to get you to think. Okay, I'm not going to answer all these questions. It's introductory. I want the question that has at times haunted me over the last 47 years to get your attention that you would ask of your life, how should we live? So I'm going to put this under three topics. Topic number one is the goodness of God's judgment. Topic number two is the necessity of repentance and faith. And topic number three is living in hope today by walking the old paths. I'll go through each of these. You don't have to write them down. Before I develop these points, I want to say something by way of application. I think that the United States of America is facing God's judgment. I think this judgment is already present in the chaos we see in our society and in the institutions that used to stabilize our society. I make no claims as to how or when this judgment will fall, but based on biblical precedent, which has played out in history repeatedly, I think it's important that we live with this understanding. We are under God's judgment. I also think that while all of us who live in America will suffer under this judgment, God's people should not fear because we have a hope that transcends any catastrophe that might befall our nation. That's because while we have legal citizenship in America, spiritually, we are exiles. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. They call us exiles. Though we've not been driven from the comforts of our homes, we are exiles no different than the exiles of Ezekiel's day. Our hope and our allegiance is found in a different homeland. So now we're ready to think about these three topics in the text. Number one, the goodness of God's judgment. Ezekiel has been pronouncing judgment, God's judgment, on these people for Five years. We tend to shy away from thinking about God's judgments. Revelation 19 makes us uncomfortable. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. And one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nation's and he will rule with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. We don't like those verses. <laughs> They're hard. But we need a righteous judge. 
A righteous judge evaluates human behavior according to a transcendent standard, the Word of God. And then he takes action to see that what is wrong is made right. He takes action so that the wrongdoer is punished and the victims of his wrongdoing are appropriately compensated. The prophets repeatedly remind us of God's judgment by exposing our sin to us and then showing us the Word of God that we do not measure up to it. When you read the prophets and their catalogs of how people sin, they almost always begin with idolatry. It's very interesting. You would think that murder and adultery and theft and the oppression of the poor were far more serious than idolatry. But this seems to be what gets the prophets' attention first. Our nation is no different. In our many sins and injustices, our nation is driven by its idols. Now, you say, we don't worship idols. We are materialists. We are atheists. We don't make images and bow down to them. Just because we deny any transcendent spiritual authority, that doesn't mean we don't create images that promise us what we crave. These images are all around us. We just don't recognize them for what they are. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says two things, two basic things about idols. (laughs) First, the idol, the physical object or image, has no power. Idols are powerless. It's It's just a block of wood. Second thing he says is that demons work their lives through these powerless objects and images. Do you get that? Idols have no power, but there are spiritual forces at work in the world that will work through the image to exercise their power. So we are no different from the, ancient, uh, the ancients. We project images that make promises to us and drive us to action to get what they promise. Idols of money, idols of safety and security, idols of pleasure, idols of power. The fundamental sin in any society is idolatry, whether it's a religious society or not. From idolatry proceeds all manner of human sin and oppression. Rebellion against parents, murder, stealing, adultery, lying, coveting, all can find their source in the human pursuit of a God substitute. So the first part of the Ten Commandments is directly related to the second part of the Ten Commandments, and we should not disengage the two and think that we can live in obedience to the Commandments number 5 through 10 without keeping to commandments 1 through 4. And then the idol fails. It leads, when it fails, it leads to despair, which ultimately leads to death. And we live in a culture that is 
it's rotting away, leading to death. Verse 10 is an expression of this despair. We're rotting away. We're slowly dying. Idolatry inevitably leads to a culture of death. So God comes in his mercy to judge us and set what is wrong right. That's a good thing. Even if we must live through the exercise of his judgments on our nation, just as Ezekiel and Jeremiah did, it's a good thing. So we've got to learn to anticipate God's good judgments, even if his setting things right means witnessing the fury of his wrath. Do you get that? I want you to get that, okay? We want the Lord to come and make his judgments because it sets the bad to good. It puts down the wicked and cares for the poor and the powerless and the oppressed. God's judgments are good. Number two, the necessity of repentance and faith. We can live through the coming judgment not only with our sins forgiven, not only with the hope of heaven, but with a life full of joy. And the pathway to that life filled with joy is repentance and faith. God's response to the Israelites' despairing conclusion that they're rotting away is to declare to them that the death they fear is not inevitable. Look at verse 11. God says to Ezekiel, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? So the Lord takes no pleasure in the death wrought by his judgments. Okay, it's not something he enjoys. Not, not something that he, out of his very heart and nature, it's an implication, it's something he must do in order to attain what is most precious to him, his own glory and his good manifested in his people. And he promises that if the sinner will turn back from his evil ways, that sinner will live. As he lives, that sinner will live. Now the idea of turning back or turning around in your ways is central to the whole concept of repentance. You turn from your sinful thoughts and deeds so that you can turn in the opposite direction to the Lord and His thoughts and His deeds and pursue Him in your life. As He lives, you can live. To live requires faith. You must believe that the Lord will deliver on His promise of life. Here He makes a promise of life following repentance and He stakes it on His very existence. Do you notice how He introduced that promise? He said, as I live. So he's saying, I'm staking my existence on the fact that if you will turn and put your trust in me, you're going to live too. That's an amazing thing. 
In the 15 chapters that follow Ezekiel 33, God fills in the details of how this new life will come about. Chapter 34, he says he's going to rescue his people from false shepherds, false leaders, and set over them one true shepherd, a king from the house of David. And he says he will make a covenant of peace with his people. He will remove, chapter 36, their hard hearts and give them a living heart filled with his spirit. He will, chapter 37, raise his people, though they are dead, to new life. Chapters 38 and 39, he'll protect them from the most violent invaders they can imagine. And then chapters 40 through 48, he will come live with them in their land. All these things are fulfilled in Jesus Christ who came as our shepherd, died in our place to receive the judgment that we deserve for our sins, gave us the gift of his spirit, and now we dwell in these little outposts of faith and repentance, anticipating a time where he will dwell on the earth and all people will have a place of safety and security, of joy and peace. He's already purchased this for us, but we're still waiting for the completion. And so, number three, living in hope today by walking the old paths. How do you find how to walk today in such a chaotic society? Schaefer's book, How should we then live is a call to repentance. It's a call to recognize the idols of our day in the ideologies of our day and to repent of our allegiance to them and to all the injustice that flows from this idolatry. But repentance is only a doorway to life. Faith in God's promises for the present and hope for his final restoration of all things creates the kind of heart that can live in this idolatrous world. Repentance and faith, you walk through that door and suddenly you find, I I can live here. I can really live here. So how do we live? How do we conduct our lives today? What does life animated by the Spirit of God look like in eating and dressing and finding shelter and exploring the earth? and making use of what God has created, and celebrating, and resting. How do we live in all the things that the culture around us has a lifestyle that's driven by their idolatries? How do we get free from these idols and live day to day? What do exiles do when they do not know the date of their homecoming. The people sent into exile in Babylon really thought, they thought they were just gonna be there a short while. They thought that their exile was temporary. They thought they were the good guys and that soon God would restore them to their rightful place in Jerusalem. So they basically lived out of their suitcases. And they thought any day now 
will be heading home. And so Jeremiah, who's still in Jerusalem, telling the people in Jerusalem that God's judgment is coming through the Babylonians, by the way, he writes a letter to the exiles because he heard that there was a prophet among them saying, you're going home soon. And he wrote to them to tell them that was not so. So he says, here's what you're supposed to do while you're in exile. Now listen to this. This is fascinating to me. What do you do while in exile? You're going to be here 70 years. Vast majority of you are going to die in exile. So how do you live today? Here's what he said. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. This is not a calling to any astounding spiritual exploits. It's pretty simple. Remain faithful to the Lord. Get married. Raise families. Build houses. Work your land. Be a good neighbor. You would think there was some extraordinary requirement that has to be somewhere in here. Jeremiah is saying, live your life as you must. You got to eat. You got to have shelter. You got to educate your children. You got to help them to make a good marriage so that they can repeat. And while you're there, you want to be concerned for the people who live around you. You want to be a good neighbor. Not only for their sake, but for your sake. The Apostle Paul says basically the first, same thing in 1 Timothy. He says, pray for the rulers around you that you may lead a quiet and peaceful life. I have found that the most spiritually impactful people are people who day to day live a good life in the community where they are. Because they have an effect on people by living a life that reveals that the judgments of God are just and there is a way to live for Him in goodness. Where families and marriages are not disintegrating. Where in the quest for wealth, we ignore the poor or even oppress them. We can do this. We can do this. Now, Jeremiah says one more thing about how to live today. Another pointer about figuring out how should we then live. Um, in Jeremiah 6, the Lord told the exiles to search out the past to find out how to live in the present. So we, we have the future painted for us, and we know where we're heading. We know what our homeland is going to be like. We know we're not there yet. We know we're exiles here. How do we know how to live and he says, look to the past. 
Look to the past. Jeremiah 6. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk on it. The Israelites were so consumed by their idols and had been for generations that they had forgotten how to walk out their lives in righteousness. They had forgotten how to live. The ancient paths were overgrown in weeds and people didn't even know where they were anymore. And we are no different today. Our nation was built on a base of of a Christian worldview. Such a base made the American form of democracy possible. But we have forgotten God, and therefore we have forgotten how to live. We have forgotten how to be a man and how to be a woman. We have forgotten how to marry and bear children and create a happy, healthy household. We have forgotten what it means to be educated and what is the purpose of work. I might add that we've forgotten how to eat and how to sleep and how to celebrate. Even our weddings and funerals can take on some of the characteristics of the idolatries that surround us. We have forgotten what it means to be a church and how to worship. We've forgotten how to pray. Now the question that the Israelites asked Ezekiel is how should we then live? It wasn't how should I live? They recognized this is a group project. How should we live? We've got to join together because this is a group project in our families, in our churches, and search for the old paths and walk in them. We live in a time of rapid change. The rot is quickly decaying our civilization. The sense I have is the curtain is falling and the light's dimming as God in his patience and his mercy gives us last opportunities to repent. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. We are exiles and sojourners in Babylon waiting for our king, seeking to walk in his ancient paths, appealing to those around us to submit to him and to find life. We are called to live, to really live here today. That means we must learn to walk the paths of joy. Okay? I I bring this message and, and you can think, oh, this is so depressing. No, this is so hopeful. The world out there is depressing. We have this hope, and so we should be laughing about it. Now, there's no clock in the room, and I didn't bring a watch. Rory, what time is it? 11.12. I'm going to take five more minutes. Something I cut out of my sermon. Okay, because I want to illustrate an attitude that I think we should carry. And it's not from the Bible. (laughs) I've been reading The Lord of the Rings with my grandson, Caleb, 
Last week we came to the chapter where the final battle for the one city in Middle-earth that can resist the forces of evil will take place. Gandalf and the hobbit Pippin, Gandalf the wizard and hobbit Pippin, have just had a tense conversation with the lord of the city and they leave the lord's presence deeply troubled. The one who should be leading the battle has an attitude of despair and defeat. And as Pippin and Gandalf return to their room and look out the window at a field which in 24 hours will be a field of slaughter, Pippin looks at the wizard's face. Now, the writer Tolkien never explains why he describes what Pippin saw, but this is what Pippin observed of Gandalf. Yet, in the wizard's face, he saw at first only lines of care and sorrow. Though as he looked more intently, he perceived that under all, there was a great joy, a fountain of mirth enough to set a kingdom laughing were it to gush forth. If anybody knew the kind of evil that was afoot in Middle-earth, it was Gandalf. If anybody knew the forces of Mordor that were going to seek to destroy this city and he didn't know how the battle was going to turn out, if anyone knew, it was Gandalf. And yet, under all, there was a great joy, a fountain of mirth, enough to set a kingdom laughing. So I think we can be the most realistic people about the condition of our world. I think we can be the most realistic people about the condition of our own hearts. For we have found the forgiveness of sins. And so we can rejoice that though, yes, we are sinners, we are forgiven sinners. I I think we can rejoice because we have the ability to repent. And I think we can rejoice because we know what's coming. See, you walk on the old paths and you realize that path is going somewhere. And you know, this is going to turn out really, really good. I've been in such perplexing situations because this coming week marks the anniversary of Larry's death. I remember sitting there in the hospital room with his body and then driving home and thinking lord what are you doing and yet underneath it all you think oh larry's with him and the lord is going to do good i know he's going to do good i know this is going to turn out good in the long term so I can mourn and lament and at the same time underneath it all there's a certain joy and laughter what did Nehemiah say as they're trying to build the defense of Jerusalem after Babylon had destroyed the city they're trying to build a wall around Jerusalem and they're being attacked at the same time and he says get to work and what's going to give you the strength and the courage to work the joy of the Lord will be your strength I think we should be people who get together every week to celebrate 
the gift of the gospel to us in Jesus Christ, and it should make us very happy. I think even in our sadness at the condition of our own hearts, at the condition of the world, at, uh, as I, I think we should all, there should be underneath it a certain mirth. This is going to turn out really, really good. And so I wanted to bring you from judgment to repentance to joy. We walk the old paths. We walk the old paths of the gospel. We walk those paths trusting that God will give us the ability to continue on in joy until that day when we see his face. And so I conclude with Hebrews 13. May the God of peace, Living Hope Church, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good so that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Lord, teach us. Teach us how to live. Teach us how to live on our commute. Teach us how to live when kids are whining. Teach us how to live when we get the bad financial news. Teach us how to live. Teach us to love your judgments. Terrible though they may be, they are good. Teach us to walk in repentance and faith. Teach us to walk the old ancient paths that lead to eternal life in all the things we do every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.